at the Beatitudes this evening, and in particular, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Theme, blessed are those who have an intense desire to be righteous, for their desire will be met. We will never be righteous without an intense desire to be righteous. The words to hunger and thirst after righteousness is a means of expressing an intense desire. Psalm 42 verse 1 states, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God. Uh, A picture of the deer after having run, and they just desperately want the refreshing of the cool water. So our soul thirsts for God. Our souls long for God. And in many instances, people don't even know what it is that they are longing for. I'm going to talk about that when we get to the aspect of satisfaction. But we will never be righteous without a longing for that righteousness. Job 23, verse 12 says, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than necessary food. Uh, Most of us like to eat. And uh, Job said, uh, I desired the word of God more than not just eating in general, but my necessary food. Uh, Even if I had to go hungry, I'd rather have the word of God than uh, to be filled uh, in my stomach. That is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The words to hunger and thirst also express a great need, a craving, if you will. The scribes and Pharisees did not view themselves in need of righteousness, but they viewed themselves as righteous. We already looked at this under the heading of being poor in spirit. But let me remind you. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. The tax gatherer did not view himself as righteous, and so pleaded for the Lord to be merciful to him. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It is in seeking the Lord's mercy, as opposed to making ourselves acceptable to God, that we will be justified. Luke 18:14. I tell you this, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. One can only be justified, that is, declared or found righteous, by trusting in the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're talking about righteousness. The first thing we have to note is that the righteousness is primarily a righteousness that comes from without. The scripture uses the term an imputed righteousness. A righteousness of Jesus Christ that is counted towards us. God has provided a righteousness through Jesus Christ. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So there's this righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness that God has provided is appropriated by faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is being manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This righteousness that is appropriated by faith is apart from a personal righteousness that we obtain by keeping the law of God. Romans 4.3 For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works or tries to earn God's favor, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Notice the ungodly one, the person who is not righteous, is going to be justified, declared righteousness, righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Um, Jeff uh, cited Psalm 32 uh, tonight uh, just before he prayed. This is an excerpt from Psalm 32 demonstrating that David realized that the righteousness that he needed was a righteousness that God gave, not a righteousness that he brought to God. One has never been justified as a result of personal obedience to the law of God. I can't stress that enough. One has never been justified as a result of personal obedience to the law of God. Whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, in the Old Testament, they were not justified by keeping the law of God. They were justified by faith. That's why Abraham is given as the example. Abraham believed God. It was counted for righteousness. That's why it says of David, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. So, David realized that he needed a righteousness that comes from God. That's not just a New Testament concept. That is true of all time. E. Uh, and then uh, Galatians 3.11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, so there is a quotation again from the Old Testament to demonstrate the reality of both Old and New Testament. E. Many of the Old Testament people failed because they sought to keep the law and merit eternal life, rather than failing to see that they did not obey the law and were in need of grace. Okay? So a lot of people stumbled at that stumbling block. But that's not just true in the Old Testament, that's true today. There are a lot of people today who think they're going to be declared righteous or merit eternal life because of the good deeds they do. It's a common thought among mankind that uh, you do good and you're going to be rewarded. But the problem is no one's perfect. No one does totally what is good. Therefore, they need a righteousness that comes from God. So, Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, that is righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Once you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize that the law cannot save you. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If it were possible for a person to be saved by keeping the law, there was no reason for Jesus to come. There was no reason for Jesus to die on the cross. There was no reason for Jesus to go through all that he did if it were possible for a person to be saved by their own good works or their own goodness. But since it is impossible for mankind to be saved by their own good works or their own good deeds or their own righteousness, Jesus Christ had to come and live a sinless life and die in our place. F. The law was not given as a means of becoming righteous, but rather to reveal that we were unrighteous. Can't emphasize that enough. The law was not given as a means of becoming righteous, but rather to reveal that we are unrighteous. Romans 3.20 Because for the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So, here is a statement that this is not just a New Testament thought. It's taught in the Old Testament, both in the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Meaning there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's not two ways of salvation. There's not salvation in the Old Testament, salvation in the New Testament. It's salvation through Jesus Christ, period. The reason for the law was to point out the fact that they were sinners. The whole point of the sacrificial system was to demonstrate their need of forgiveness. They needed to be offering bulls. They needed to be offering lambs. They needed to be offering sacrifices because they were sinful. And yet, so many failed to make that distinction and thought that they were righteous because of what they were doing and because they were offering these sacrifices. It'd be like someone today thinking they're righteous because they pray. They're righteous because they go to church. They're righteous because they do certain things and are getting brownie points with God. Well, there are no brownie points with God. It's impossible to be saved on the basis of our own personal righteousness or obedience. G, the law was given to drive us to Christ. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. All of the sacrificial system pointed to Jesus Christ. To point to the fact that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was to point to the fact that there was a need. And as Hebrews says, the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. And so there was a remembrance year by year. There was an annual Day of Atonement. There was a continual offering these sacrifices to say, these sacrifices are not enough. The psalmist David understood that. In Psalm 51, when he's confessing his sin that he committed with Bathsheba, he says, uh, you did not desire a sacrifice, but a broken and contrite heart. Thou will not uh, despise. Uh, he knew that it was more than just offering this sacrifice. He knew that it was his broken heart for his unrighteousness and trusting in the righteousness that only God could provide. Three. 
The child of God, though justified by faith, still longs for a personal righteousness. Now, I refer to this as a, as a personal righteousness. If you read theology books, it usually refers to an objective and subjective righteousness. The objective righteousness is the righteousness that comes from God. The subjective righteousness is our own, what I'm referring to here is personal righteousness, our own obedience. We will never be saved because of our own personal obedience. But that doesn't mean that our own personal obedience is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that our own personal obedience is not an important issue. The child of God, though justified by faith, still longs for a personal righteousness. Paul writes and says, I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good, for I joyfully confer with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So Paul says, in my mind, intellectually, I agree. I say, yes, this is the way I should live. I should live this holy and just and perfect right. But I find within myself desires that run contrary. We all know that, that dichotomy. We all know of those times in which we've confessed our sin. We've asked God to help us to uh, overcome sin in our life. We make decisions. We come forward. Uh, we promise that we're going to turn over a new leaf. And all of a sudden we find ourselves back doing the very same things. That's what Paul's describing here. Saying that I, I want to live righteously, but yet I find that I don't have the power to do that. So he says in Romans 7.25, Thanks be to God who Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. So I thank God that he's done a work in my life, that my desire is to live for him, and yet I still see myself falling way short. Four. The child of God should seek a personal righteousness. 1 Timothy 6.11 But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You see, that righteousness is not a righteousness that comes from God. It's talking about our own personal righteousness, our own holiness. Flee from sexual immorality and impurity. And we looked at that uh, two weeks ago in a Sunday morning service. Uh, we should strive for personal righteousness, realizing that that doesn't save us. It's not our personal righteousness that saves us. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't give us license. We still should be trying to live righteous and holy lives. One day, the child of God will be satisfied with a complete and perfect righteousness. We will be personally righteous in a future time. Galatians 5.5 5, For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are looking forward to a time when we are going to be in God's presence and we are going to be righteous. Not just viewed as righteous. Not just objectively righteous. Not just righteous because Jesus Christ's righteousness is counted to us. But we will really be righteous. We are going to be without sin. There's no, not going to be any more lying. There's not going to be any more cheating. There's not going to be any more stealing. There's no adultery in heaven. 
There is no wrongdoing in his presence. And one day, you and I are going to be totally sinless. Not just viewed as sinless. We are going to be sinless. It doesn't happen in this life. But we are striving to get closer to the mark. We are working at, at trying to be more righteous today than I was yesterday. We're, we're trying to develop that godly characteristic all the time knowing that I'm never going to be perfect until I'm in His presence. B. The satisfaction of heaven will be our righteousness. Psalm 17:15. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with thy likeness when I awake. So, we find out that ultimate satisfaction is never going to be achieved in this life. It's only going to be achieved in life to come. And what is going to satisfy us is when we awake with his righteousness. I'll unpack that more in just a few moments. Six, it is through our relationship to Jesus Christ that we can, in fact, begin to live righteous lives. Prior to faith in Christ, we cannot live truly righteous lives. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him, who honestly seek him. Uh, Our motives, before we knew Christ, were impure. But through Christ, now, we can actually manifest pure motives. However, having placed faith in Christ, God now gives to us the Holy Spirit who is producing righteousness within us. Galatians 5.16 So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. I've said it before, I can't say it enough, that the term holy is a descriptive term. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of Holiness. Now, it would be appropriate to refer to the Holy Father and the Holy Son. That the Spirit is not holy in some sense in which God the Father is not or, or God the Son is not. He's not more holy than God the Father. He's not more holy than God the Son. So why do we refer to, refer to him as the Holy Spirit? Answer, because it's the primary ministry of the Spirit is to produce holiness. In us. That's why God gave us His Spirit to produce within us holiness. And without His Spirit, we will never produce holiness. And by His Spirit, we can produce holiness. Notice Galatians 5.18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then these words, against such things, there is no law. Meaning that you cannot produce these things in your life by rules, by self-determination, by your own personal effort. Charles and uh, 
John Wesley founded what has ultimately become known as Methodism. Uh, Methodists. And the reason that they were called Methodists is because John and Charles Wesley established a method for obtaining righteousness. They set down a series of rules that if you would do these things ritually, faithfully, habitually, including good things like reading the scriptures, praying, and so on, if you do these things ritually, faithfully, you would, in fact, become righteous. In that, they were no different than the Pharisees. They said, if you do these things, you'll be righteous. But it wasn't until later in life that Charles Wesley actually became saved. He thought he was going to be righteous through his method, through his discipline, through his self-sacrifice, through his effort. He was going to be this righteous person. But... He came to the United States, and, and I have his journal, and in his journal he writes, his, his biography, uh, his diary, if you will, he writes and he makes it clear that the reason he came to the United States was to save his soul. He thought that God would be well pleased and he could be assured of eternal life if he made the sacrifice of leaving England and coming to this barbarian country uh, to preach. And it was here that he actually discovered the truth of Salvation by grace through faith. It was here that he actually came to a place where he was trusting not in his own goodness, but in the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot be righteous by simply our own determination. Uh, Who among us have not said, when we have confessed our sin, you know, Lord, I'm not going to do this again. And we find ourselves doing the very same thing. So, what we need to do is cultivate a relationship to the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have to trust in Him to produce righteousness in us. And so, it looks a lot like the very things that uh, Wesley was talking about, but though they look like, they're far different. Okay, So that praying is necessary for me to be righteous, but it's not because... God looks at me as righteous because I pray, but rather because I need the dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I I, I have to ask God, God, give me victory in my life without your help. I'm going to succumb. The example of Peter, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So I have to ask God to help me. Yes, reading the scripture can be very helpful if the reading of the scripture causes me to see my need, causes me to recognize my shortcoming, causes me to confess my sin, causes me to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if I think I'm righteous because I read the Bible an hour every day, it's a stumbling block. It's though the very fact I'm doing it makes me righteous. No, no, no. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in of itself. I'm not righteous because I read the Bible. But through reading the Bible, I can promote a true righteousness in my life. Okay? So the spiritual disciplines are a necessary part, but they are not righteousness. They are a means of trying to procure or obtain righteousness. Moving on. God saved us 
so that we would live righteous lives. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was more than just the intent of Jesus dying in our place. It was more than just the fact that he bore our sin. There is an asymmetrical aspect to the imputation of righteousness and sin. So that my sin was placed on Jesus. And the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That means he was treated as a sinner. God the Father treated him like a sinner. That's why Jesus Christ died. But he did not personally become a sinner. He committed no sin either before or after my sins were laid upon him. So Peter says that though he was reviled, he did not revile again. Uh, though he was spat upon, you know, he turned the other cheek. He, he did not sin personally. The goal was not that we would become righteous and he would become a sinner. So that his, my sin was laid upon him. But here's the asymmetrical part. His righteousness was laid upon me with the intent, then, that I would actually become righteous. So that I would actually become different. He bore the penalty of my sin. I am righteous in the sight of God because of what Jesus Christ did. You are righteous in the sight of God because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are acceptable in God's sight. You are going to heaven based on what Jesus did. But it was the intent of God in dying for us. That not merely would we be viewed as righteous, but we really would be righteous. That our behavior would change. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit. To make us a new creation. To be born again. All of that language. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. This change of life. This righteousness now that we are supposed to begin to manifest. Seven, there is a significant difference between wanting to be righteous and wanting to appear to be righteous. The Pharisees did not have an intense desire to be righteous, only to appear righteous. Matthew 23, 5, but all their works they do to be seen of men. Number one, we must be careful not to do acts of righteousness primarily to receive the praise of people. Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Number two, if we do acts of righteousness merely to be seen by men, then that is our reward. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Acts of righteousness should not be done in such a way as to garner praise from individuals. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. This activity is not righteous activity at all. The hypocrisy is that these individuals are not really concerned about the needy. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. They're concerned with their own glory. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honored by men. The honor of men is all that these hypocrites will get. Notice the end of verse 2. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. 
Rather than great public displays of our generosity, we should seek anonymity. So Jesus taught us, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Anonymity helps to guard our sinful hearts, so that your giving may be in secret. Now, uh, Jeff uh, Gaiman presented the ministry of Angel Tree to us this morning, and uh, uh, Operation Christmas Child, is that right? Okay. Those are the two ministries, Operation Christmas Child and Angel Tree. He said that uh, these are hard economic times, etc., etc., and uh, you don't need to give to both of these. In fact, you don't have to give to any one of them. All right? Um, it's a good thing to be giving if you want to give and if you're concerned about the needy. But if you're concerned about what are people going to think, if you're thinking, man, you know, there, here are these... These uh, tables up here, and there's shoe boxes on them, and, and people are going to look around, and, you know, if I don't go up there with a shoe box, what are they going to think about me? Well, I better get a shoe box. And, no, I mean, what are they going to think if I don't give a shoe box to both of these things? You know, maybe, maybe you know, people are going to say, well, he isn't really concerned and, and all that. And so we talk ourselves into coming up with a gift for each one because of what people might think of us or how we might look or how we might be viewed. Well, that's the hypocrisy that Jesus is speaking against. Uh, that's not what is to motivate us. E, rather than seeking to appear to be righteous, we should long to be truly righteousness. An inner righteousness that only we know about. Okay. So the key factor here is not what people think of me or how they view me, that shouldn't be my motivation of what people think of me or how they view me. My motivation ought to be, what does God think about me? And what do I know to be true? One of the great tests for us and our own personal righteousness is, what are we like, what are we like when no one's around? What are we like when we're all by ourselves and have the expectation of privacy. What do we do then? What do we do then? When nobody's around and nobody knows, what do we think? Because no one can read our hearts or minds. What do we long after? What do we fantasize about? What would we do if we knew we could sin without anyone finding out? It's one of the temptations that exists when people move away or people go off to college. They have the expectation. It's the old, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's the thought of being able to sin without any kind of anyone finding out. Well, how differently would we live if no one would find out? That's the character that we are to be seeking inwardly, where no one can read my thoughts or minds. Privately, when no one's around, no one is looking over my shoulder to see what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I watching? How am I conducting myself? 
What are those thoughts that I have about other people that nobody knows? That's the kind of righteousness that the Word of God teaches us that we should seek after. Not the appearance of righteousness. Not just so that people view us as righteous. So that people pat us on the back. But we really are righteous. Eight. Only righteousness can satisfy what the heart truly longs for. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, or they shall be satisfied. I like that translation by the NASB. To be satisfied. There is much in life that does not satisfy. Material goods do not satisfy. They shall cast silver in the streets. Their gold should be removed. Their silver and gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls. People in this world are looking for satisfaction. Contentment. Peace. They want to be satisfied. They want to be filled. Okay? Uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, it's, it's like that Thanksgiving dinner. You know, it's huge. And you just gorge yourself to the place where there's more food on the table, but you say, well, I, I've had enough. Not just because you say, I'm on a diet, I need to stop, but, you know, you, you really have packed away all you can. You, you just couldn't eat anymore, if, even if you were able to. You're, you're satisfied. You're satisfied. Well, the Scripture teaches that the only thing that can satisfy us is righteousness. And there are people that are seeking happiness through material gains. That's not where satisfaction comes. And all you have to do is look around. And whether a person has $100 or where they have a million dollars or where they have a billion dollars, it's not enough. It's not enough. Why are people greedy? Why do people that have $20 billion want $25 billion? Because you can never get enough. You can never gain satisfaction through wealth. Material prosperity does not satisfy. You shall eat and not be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5.10 He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. So many people work and sacrifice in order to be able to get something. And they delude themselves in saying to themselves, if I only had this, I would be happy. If I only had this new car, if I only had this new house, if only I had this, then I would be happy. And the frustrating thing is, when they have given their all to attain it, they get it, and they're still not satisfied. They want something else. They, they want something more. No matter how big the house, no matter if you have a $25 million mansion, there's a better mansion out there. And there is more to be satisfied. I, I, I looked on the internet and it was talking about luxury gifts. And it was, and they listed, you know, the things that, that people want. And one of them was a, a $25,000 purse. And it was alligator. And, I, and I'm sitting there thinking, $25,000. I mean, that's just beyond my, uh, can't get my mind around that. Okay, I mean, you know, I, I think purses a lot less than that are pretty extravagant. $25,000. But you know what the sad thing is? 
The person who gets that $25,000 alligator purse is going to find out there's another purse out there next year. And they're going to want that, that purse. Uh, we need to realize that material things do not satisfy. Only righteousness can satisfy the longing heart. Righteousness manifested in this life satisfies. The righteousness of a true worship of God satisfies. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even in thy holy temple. There's a certain satisfaction. I hope that you experience as you come to church. I hope it brings a certain amount of contentment. I hope it allows you to put things in perspective. And, you know, I hope you feel good about yourself for being here tonight. Because you should. You made certain sacrifices. You made certain commitments. And you're here. And you ought to be able to look yourself in the, in the mirror and say, you know, that was a good thing. That was the right use of my time. I'm glad I'm here. Secondly, the righteousness of godly speech brings satisfaction. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. By the fruit of his mouth. That's going to satisfy him. Um, I thought, should have thought of this earlier. I would have shown the clip with Pastor Grant's help. But uh, how many people have uh, seen uh, You've Got Mail? Well, okay, a few of you have seen You've Got Mail. Well, the Meg Ryan character in that, uh, in that uh, movie has just this really sweet personality. And the Tom Hanks figure in the movie is this, this guy that she's really upset with. And she's mad at herself because she can't come up with a good zinger. She can't come up with a, a good thing that will just really make this guy feel bad. And she'd just love to put him in his place. And finally it happens. She knows just what to say to put this guy down. And so she says it. And she's happy because she finally got it. And then she goes home and she's miserable. And she said, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't be that kind of person. It, it doesn't bring satisfaction. It doesn't bring contentment. Doing the right thing. I can't tell you what a blessing it is to be able to look in the mirror and say to yourself, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm really trying to do what's right. I'm really trying to do the right thing here. And there is just a contentment. God has given us consciences. And we can never be happy living in sin. Because we have a conscience. And though everybody tells us we shouldn't feel guilty, we feel guilty. We feel guilty. It's wonderful to live a life that is guilt-free. Not that we can be sinless by any means. And not that we should be stroking ourselves on the back. But, but just a sense of being able to look ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, I'm trying to live by a certain standard. And I'm proud of that standard. And there are a lot of people today that aren't proud of the way they're living their lives. And we talk about it in terms of low self-esteem. And our world tries to deal with low self-esteem by saying, you shouldn't feel bad about the life you're living. It isn't going to work. Because if you're living a life that's not worthy of praise, nobody has to point that out to you. Nobody has to come up to you and say, you know, you're living in sin. Deep down inside, the person knows it. Deep down inside, the person is aware. That's why they become so sensitive to it. That's why they think everybody else is judging them. Because they think this about themselves. Lastly, the righteousness of service with eternity in view satisfies. Ecclesiastes 4.8 There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor. 
Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor and breathe my soul good? This also is vanity. Yes, it is sore travail. Ultimate satisfaction is experienced in the life to come when we are like Christ. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. What is going to bring contentment in heaven? We have this imagery to give us a sense of the grandeur and the beauty of heaven. Uh, that these are streets of gold. Streets of gold. Uh, there are a lot of songs that emphasize the material aspects of heaven. Such as, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And a bright mansion of silver and gold. That's not what makes heaven heaven. It's not that, man, now I live in a shack. And one day, I'm going to be living in this mansion of silver and gold. One day, I'm going to rise the... I'm going to, I'm going to get up there, okay? Right now, it's Bill Gates. But one day, I'm going to be richer than Bill Gates. And I'm going to have this, this mansion of silver and gold. Bramp! It's a picture what makes heaven heaven and what makes heaven a contented place is we're going to be righteous. And what is wrong with this world and what makes this world the, the wretched place it is to live is the unrighteousness of all of us. It's because we misuse each other. It's because we abuse each other. It's because we lie to each other. It's because we steal from each other. It's because we have hatred towards each other that this world is a miserable place. And this world is going to become a fantastic place when all of that stops. And the psalmist said, when I awake with your righteousness, then I'm going to be satisfied. We're going to be content. We are not in heaven going to want to remodel our mansion or put a new gold roof on top or whatever the case may be. We are going to be content because that which we ultimately long for and don't even realize it is righteousness. Righteousness. Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts, who goes after that. Because that's what brings satisfaction. That's a life worth living. That's a life that you look back upon with no regret. That's a life when you're 60 years old, you can say, as opposed to the person going through the midlife crisis, well, I wish I had done all this differently. I've wasted my life. You will never waste your life in pursuing righteousness, godliness, holiness. But make no mistake, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that alone that saves us. But it doesn't render the personal righteousness insignificant. For there is no way to be satisfied in this life without living a life of righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and help us to strive, not in our own effort, but in relying upon the Holy Spirit, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we might experience that satisfaction. And we look forward to that day in which we are going to be in your presence and truly be righteous. And Lord, we know at that point we will want nothing else. 
for it will be all that the heart can desire. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.